Today, I have the assignment of bringing to you week two of our Exiles series. Pastor Greg spoke on Exiles two weeks ago, and it was an amazing first message that illustrated to us that we are not long for this world, that this world is not our home, that this is just a temporary residence. We are exiles in this world, and how as exiles do we live for Jesus in a culture that comes against faith? How do we live for Jesus in a world and in a culture that is often hostile towards faith? So if you have your Bibles, open to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Before we read the text, I want to first share with you some context. Peter writes this letter to a group of Christians who are suffering state and social persecution in the region of Asia Minor. These Christians are simply trying to live for Jesus, simply trying to obey the commands of Jesus, but they are being ostracized by their families. They are being cast out. They are being made fun of. The the culture is telling them that they're crazy. The culture is literally making up slanderous rumors about the Christians in this region, saying that you Christians, you, you are cannibals. You are having orgies. You are barbaric. And the culture at the time was coming against the way of Jesus. They also were facing state persecution and being penalized. And what it meant to follow Jesus, to make a decision, to give your life to Christ, meant that you had to forego your entire reputation and live a life of suffering. But there were still people giving their life to Jesus. And Peter recognizes the pain and out of the pain and out of the turmoil and out of the frustration and out of the persecution, he writes a letter to these people saying, you need to rise up in boldness. You need to rise up in strength. And what the enemy does against you, God will protect you and he will shield you and he will guide you. And it's not of this world. What you're, what you're following is not just a, a life here in the flesh, but it is a life in eternity. And the, what you need to do is, is even though you're disenfranchised, even though you're alone, you need to remain true to your faith. Don't let the social pressure cause you to give up or to give in. Stay true to what God's called you to do. This is Peter's message to the people that he's writing to. And today we get to read that very message. First Peter chapter one, verse three, if you'd please rise for the reading of God's word. Starting in verse three, it says this, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You ought to give God glory just right there because we have a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, it can never spoil, it can never fade. This is your inheritance, friends. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and in glory and in honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you are filled with an inexpressible and 
glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I don't even need to preach a message. Peter did it for us. Put your hand on the shoulder of the person next to you and pray with me. Jesus, I pray that you would eliminate me from the picture and that your presence would be made known through these words. God, I pray that you would anoint this word. I pray that you would anoint the hearts of the listener. I pray that you would prepare the ear for every single person that's walking through persecution and walking through pain and walking through trial and turmoil. God, I pray that you would just dawn the doors of this church, that your spirit would be known, that you would fall on this place like the fresh morning dew, Lord. You would awaken our hearts to the reality of your love, to the reality of your grace, to the reality of your mercy. And Jesus, I pray that every person that has a hand on the shoulder of the person next to him, whether online or in person, I pray that every single person who has a hand on their shoulder would be prepared and ready to receive what you have. Their ears would be open. Their minds would be focused. There would be no distractions in the name of Jesus. That when we hear the word of the Lord, that it would dawn the doors of our heart and change us from the inside out. Rewire our brains. Rewire our neuropathways. Change how we see our our circumstance, change how we see our persecution, and give us an anointing in Jesus' name. Everybody shout amen. amen. You can take your seat. Our text places us directly between two opposing realities, two realities that should not be able to exist at the same time, yet they do, two realities that according to logic and, and the way that the brain works, should not be able to occur at the same time. And the weight of our text is embedded in the tension between the reality of joy and the reality of suffering. Joy and suffering are two separate emotions. They're emotions that are opposite to one another, and to exist simultaneously would be an oxymoron. It shouldn't be able to happen. It shouldn't be able to, to take place. But the reality is, it does. See, if joy is a result of well-being, the definition of joy being great pleasure that comes from well-being, and suffering is the state of undergoing pain from hardship, then according to logic, it should be impossible to have joy while also facing a hardship. So let me ask the question, why does Peter tell us that we can embody the very emotion that is opposite to the experience we're living. Why does God and Peter tell us that you can have joy while you're suffering? If joy is a result of well-being and suffering is a result of hardship, both of these things occur as a result of our circumstance, how can we embody an emotion that is dictated by external circumstances when the circumstance tells you you should feel the opposite? In your flesh, you can't snap your fingers and have joy. Have you ever heard choose joy? It kind of doesn't always make sense, and it feels difficult when you try to do it, and it feels sometimes inauthentic when you're doing it. It's, it's not toxic uh, positivity. What it is is something different and something deeper than that. 
in our flesh, we experience joy when something is happening to us, and we experience pain when something is happening to us. So we can't just snap our fingers and have joy. But Peter happened to model this oxymoron and this conundrum in his ministry throughout the course of his life. He experienced suffering, yet he would exude joy, something that should not be possible in the flesh. But today, we're not just talking about the flesh. Peter and the apostles in Acts chapter 5 were apprehended by the Sanhedrin and they were beaten and they were flogged because they preached the name of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 5, it says this, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they counted themselves worthy of suffering disgrace. They suffered, yet they rejoiced. They just got the cheeks beat off them by the Sanhedrin, but they say, I'm going to rejoice because why? Because what we're talking about today is not just our flesh, it's not just our mind, it's not just our body, it's our spirit. There's, a, there's another realm, there's another, there's another way to access joy. It's not just in what we see, it's in what we sense. And I've never been beaten for my faith or flogged yet. My wife's going to flog me after service for giving up the name of the baby, but... I've never been beaten, but the last time a family member made a comment about my faith being a fairy tale, it kind of hurt my feelings a little bit, and I wanted to snuggle my blankie. But how is it that you can experience joy while simultaneously experiencing suffering? See, it's not logical, but the answer isn't found in logic. The answer isn't found in psychology, although I love psychology. It's not found in sociology. It's not found in cosmology. The answer is found somewhere. It's found in theology. See, we don't have joy because of what we see in the flesh. We have joy because of what we sense in our spirit. In the flesh, I can see pain, but in my spirit, I can feel purpose. In my flesh and my eyes, I see persecution, but in my spirit, I feel peace. With my eyes, I can see suffering, but in my spirit, I can see a vision of eternity. See, what I'm talking about today is so much deeper than putting on a mask. It's so much deeper than mustering up something in your own strength. What's not from your power, it's not from your ability. What I'm talking about today is us living in the tension between two realities, between joy and suffering. And I'm talking today about a revelation of God's glory that unlocks an unrelenting, inexpressible, unexplainable, unstoppable, indomitable joy that comes over you. This joy that I'm talking about is not just a psychological emotion, it is a theological revelation. And I hope to unpack that revelation for you today. The title of our message this morning is up on the screen. It is un unshakable joy, unshakable joy. How can I have an unshakable joy, an emotion that goes up and down? How can it be unshakable? It's an oxymoron, but I can have it. See, how we feel reflects our circumstance, but how we live is a reflection of our character. So let's revisit the question, why does God and why does Peter tell people who are suffering under the hand of persecution and pain, why does he tell them that you can have joy? Wouldn't that almost be offensive to somebody who is actually suffering? I'm in pain, but you're telling me to have joy? 
How is it possible? The answer is this. It's because you, your thoughts control the direction of your life. What dominates your mind and your thoughts will dominate the direction of your life. And what you think is where you will go. And if you are focusing on the things that are hurting you, you will continue to acknowledge that you are being hurt. But if you focus on the things of eternity, it changes your perspective. See, Peter sets his mind on eternity, and eternity is what dominates Peter's perspective. It's what dominates his view of himself, what dominates his view of his ministry. And so when the things around him tell him that he should not be able to access joy, he says, I know my eternity. I did, I'm not subject to these circumstances. Peter had his mind fixed on eternity. He writes this. He writes that we have an eternal inheritance that is set before us. And although I'm facing suffering and my life is hard and I don't know what to do, I know Jesus. And because I know Jesus, my inheritance is waiting for me. I know what God has got for me. And in the face of persecution and pain, glory of eternity is making everything else fade away. Peter had a joy that was unshakable, a joy that was not subject to circumstance. He had a joy that was that's changing the way he sees his life. And my prayer for you today is that you would develop within you a vision that would give you a joy, a joy that's unshakable, a joy that's indomitable, a joy that is unstoppable, a joy that can't be subdued, it can't be talked down. And when the enemy attacks you, and when life doesn't go your way, and when the finances are not in order, that you would have joy that would rise up with you, a boldness that would change your perspective, that would change how you view your circumstance. It would give you a new sustaining power, an unshakable joy, and you might even feel it at the same time you're feeling suffering. But it's undeniable, and it's unstoppable. God doesn't bend to man's logic. He is above that. See, God wants to give you a joy that comes from a vision. It doesn't come from my flesh here on earth. It comes from a vision I have of eternity. And so our text is authoritative, not just because it's the word of God, although it is God-breathed, therefore it has authority. It is authoritative because it is written from a place of experience, experience carries with it authority. See, in our culture, we overvalue talent and undervalue experience. We forget that because we're so impressed by talent that we forget that talent can take you to a level, but it's character that keeps you there. So experience is not just a measure of talent, it's a measure of character because you have to have the character to stay in what gives you the experience. And Peter writes this message out of a place of experience, personal suffering, personal experience. And so what makes the text profound is not just the words that were written, but the life of the man who wrote them. There's authority in experience. See, it's easy to write the revelation. What's hard is to live through what caused it in the first place. And Peter writes to us a revelation. Now, if you're a parent in the room, you would never purchase or read a book written by an author who was not a parent because they would be writing out of a well of knowledge because anybody can read a book, but they would not be writing out of a place of 
wisdom because wisdom is knowledge applied. If they have not have yet to apply the knowledge, then they don't have the experience and the authority to write the book. Because experience carries authority. See, it's your scars that prove that you've been in the battle and you made it out. I can't trust you unless you have some scars. I can't trust you unless you've been through something. Because you find out what you're made of in the fight, not in the comfort. And if you have some scars, then I can tell that you went through something and came out the other side. I can tell that you didn't bow down. I can tell that you didn't give up. If you have scars, it points back to how God has healed you. Experience has authority. See, I'm an MMA fan. Any MMA fans in the room? There's going to be like three. Yeah. Praise God. Glory to God. Now, I know it's, you know, it's not, it's kind of rough and tumbles, you know, MMA. My son does MMA on my wife and I every single day when we try to brush his teeth. He does MMA. Um, We do need, we need prayer. We need all of it. He does not like his teeth being brushed. Um. I'm an MMA fan, and what happens, I've heard this described. I'm not an MMA fighter. I'm kind of a wimp. I wouldn't be able to handle it. But what happens in MMA with a a new MMA fighter or someone who's interested in training MMA is they go to a gym, and they pay about $150 a month on average to go to the gym, and they stand in front of a kickboxer for the first time, and they get punched, and they get kicked, and things like that happen. But it's when they get kicked in the leg they found that they find out what MMA is all about. See, it hurts to get punched in the stomach. It doesn't feel good to get punched in the head. But when you get kicked in the leg, it hurts significantly worse than you could ever imagine. There's just something different about it. I don't know why, but what happens, it's described that a new MMA fighter, when they get kicked, blah, kicked in the leg for the first time, really hard, they can literally go into shock, a state of shock, because they, did, they were not prepared for what they were experiencing. And they ask themselves this question, do I want to continue to pay $150 a month to stand back up in front of this dude and get this again until I develop the durability and the experience and the ability to withstand the storm so I can stay in the fight? Or do I want to save $150 a month, save pain, save my leg, go home, put an ice pack on it, snuggle a heated blankie with some Oreos and play a video game. And the reality is most of us go home and play the video game because we are more committed to our comfort than our growth. Here's the thing about it is so many people are living a counterfeit video game style faith where they, they get in the fight and they think that because they're in the fight, um, they're winning. But the reality is when life leg kicks them and the leg kick hurts hard way more than you ever could have imagined and living for Jesus in a culture that wants to tear you away is more painful than you could have imagined you get out of the fight and you pursue comfort over character the reality is God is calling us that we would not retreat to what's comfortable instead we would realize that it's in the pain and that it's in the fight and that it's in the leg kick and that it's in the difficulty and it's when in what hurts that God uses those things things to develop us from the inside out. We need to pursue character over comfort. It's the very thing that causes people to give up in their faith that God uses to develop them the most. And sometimes that's a moment and sometimes it's a season and sometimes it feels like it never ends, but you have to stay in the fight. We are not fighting for victory. I pray you hear this. We're not fighting for victory 
We already have victory. We're fighting for faithfulness. Can I get back in the fight? Can I stay committed to what God calls me to do? Or am I going to bow to the pressure of my family who is making fun of me? Am I going to bow to the pressure of society? Am I going to bow to the social pressure and the the persecution and the pain? And pursue the heated blanket. See, it's in Peter's failure, it's in his scars, it's in his pain that he develops the experience he needs to write the letter that we're reading with authority. It's in the pain of his persecution. It's in the pain of his imprisonment. It's in the pain of his beatings. It's in the pain of him failing and denying Jesus three times. It's in what hurts him the most that God is using to develop him. We need to understand that it's in our trial that God has embedded what we need to accomplish his purpose that he's given us. It's in our pain that God is preparing us. Point number one this morning, the trial is the opportunity. Not your comfort, not what comes easy, not the thing that looks most appetizing, not the thing that looks most attractive, not the thing that looks most glorious. It's in the pain that God has embedded your opportunity to, as Peter says, prove the genuineness of your faith. The trial is the opportunity. If you're like me, you don't like to hear that because I'd rather go the easy route. But it's in our pain that we discover God's promise to stay faithful. God's promise to always be there for you and always be there with you. To never let you down. To never let you alone. It's in our pain that we discover God's promise and his provision in his hand. When life leg kicks us and it hurts more than we could have imagined and we just want to give up and we just want to go home and we want to pursue comfort, it's in the pain that God has embedded an opportunity to get back up. See, many people get bitter because they get hurt. The leg kick hurt. The life leg kick hurt more than you could have imagined. And it's in your pain that you want to get bitter and get cynical and get angry and point fingers. But God is saying that I gave you a new opportunity, an opportunity to prove the genuine of your faith, to rise up in what I gave you, to stand in boldness, to have an unshakable joy because you have a picture of eternity. The trial is the opportunity. This is my opportunity to stay faithful. How I feel reflects my circumstance, but how I live reflects my character. I need, God, give us the character to stay in the fight. God, give us the character to to develop experience, to not run away, to not be afraid, to not, not bow down to idols, to not bow down to the culture. Give us the character we need to stay in the fight and develop the experience to accomplish our assignment. See, in Peter's greatest trials, he faced his greatest opportunities. Peter is in the boat, and Jesus is walking on water, walking towards the boat, and he calls unto Peter, come to me. And Peter, a fisherman, uneducated and unprepared, steps out into what should be certain death of drowning in obedience. He walks towards Jesus on the water. What's amazing about the moment is not that Jesus walked on water. It's Jesus. He should do that. It's that the fisherman walked on water. The ordinary man doing an extraordinary thing. It wasn't because he had the ability to. He had absolutely nothing. What it was, was his obedience in the face of certain death. 
He was obedient in a moment that shouldn't make sense. And Jesus did something extraordinary through him. And I'm telling you right now, in this moment in your life, God is calling you an ordinary person to do an extraordinary thing. And he's not going to do it through your talent. He's not going to do it through your ability. He's not going to do it through the things that you think make you good. He's going to do it in a moment of obedience. And it's going to be something that seems impossible. But he's going to do it through you in Jesus' name. It's in your obedience that you accomplish the extraordinary. See, Peter was corrected and rebuked by Jesus more than any other person in the Bible. And he was a, a, a pupil of Jesus, so that had to hurt sometimes when you get told you're just getting it wrong over and over and over again. And he wanted to be faithful and stay in it. And the thing is, so many people, when they get rebuked or they get corrected, even if it's spiritually right, they run away. But Peter said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stay faithful to what God's calling me to do. And I'm not going to get mad because I got rebuked. I'm going to listen to what is being told to me. And I'm going to apply this to my life and grow. Peter didn't know Jesus was preparing him to preach on the day of Pentecost. And Peter, in one of his worst moments, denies Jesus three times. When Jesus is being crucified and executed on the cross, Peter denies Jesus three separate times. And he had to have carried the weight of that mistake in his mind. I made a mistake. I blew it. This was my chance, and it's gone. But Jesus gave him the most powerful fourth opportunity you could ever see. See, God is a God of not just first, second, and third chances. He's a God of fourth chances. And Peter didn't walk away from the ministry like Judas. You know the story. Judas makes a mistake and abandons everything. Peter said, I'm going to pursue ministry even though I messed up because God's a God of fourth chances. My trial is my opportunity, and in my pain, I discover God's promise. So we got to stay locked in. we got to stay focused. I've got to prepare for not just a battle in flesh and blood, but a battle in the spiritual realm, a battle of the unseen enemy, a battle against the enemy that wants to take your soul and take your family and take your purpose. See, we have to stay focused. I remember when I was a kid, and the enemy had me convinced that life was not worth living. And in my, de my depression and in my anxiety, I just was lost to the world. And I remember feeling like in my nihilism, in my atheism, in my agnosticism, that, that life just wasn't worth it. And I remember wanting to take my life. And I remember wanting to give up. And I remember thinking it's just not worth another day. The reality is I was diagnosed with cancer three years ago, two years ago. And I remember getting the bill thinking, I don't know how I'm going to pay for this, let alone is this going to kill me someday? Is the cancer going to come back? And I remember when my church fell apart three years ago and the enemy thought he had me down and out convincing me my ministry career was over but I gotta remind somebody today and I believe this is my assignment Jesus whipped him back then he whipped him 2,000 years ago on the cross and he's gonna whip him again today no matter what you're facing no matter how the enemy comes against you no matter what you're dealing with God is triumphant and God is calling you not to fight just for victory but for faithfulness get back in the fight. The trial is the opportunity. But how do I stay motivated when my circumstance is causing me in my emotions to feel nothing but pain and turmoil and discomfort 
and my marriage is on the rocks and my kids are walking away from Jesus and I got the diagnosis from the doctor and my family has abandoned me and I'm depressed and I don't even want to get out of bed. How do you stay motivated? How can you possibly stay committed when you just feel like the world is coming against you? And there's this interesting thing about motivation. Motivation is what causes you to act. See, it's not discipline. Discipline is what comes after you've been motivated to be disciplined. So discipline sustains you, but motivation is what launches you into something new. And today we got to launch into something new. Motivation, you're motivated by something. It's always an emotion. And there are many emotions that motivate us to action, good and bad. What's amazing about motivation is it can cause an ordinary person to do an extraordinary thing with the right motivation. See, one of our most powerful emotions that, we f- that drives motivation is inspiration. What can inspire us to be motivated to do what seems completely impossible to have joy while having suffering this oxymoron? One of the greatest ways to develop inspiration to have inspiration is to cast a new vision. So what we're not motivated because we don't have vision. And my hope today is that we would unlock and uncover a new vision, an eternal vision that awakens our motivation, that awakens our body and our mind and our heart to something new. Point number two today, eternal vision awakens mortal motivation. My body is not good enough. My mind is not good enough. I have to trust that God's gonna give me something not just in the flesh, but in the spirit to stay committed in the flesh. We need an eternal vision. See, Peter had a vision of eternity that awakened a mortal motivation to do what was absolutely impossible. Peter came from suffering. He was beaten. He was tortured. He was imprisoned. He was chased out of town. He was ostracized. But what he didn't know is what would come two years after writing the very letter that we're reading today. Emperor Nero in 64 AD in Rome would launch a great persecution against the Christians. And he would viciously murder and kill and torment Christians throughout the city in public spaces. And amongst the victims... Under his hand of persecution were Peter and Paul. And the amazing thing is Peter had to write this letter not knowing that that was going to happen just two years after writing the letter. The letter talking about our internal inheritance, talking about the proven genuineness of our faith, talking about staying committed, that someday we're going to see Jesus face to face. He didn't know but he was obedient unto death. So Peter writes this letter, and he had already faced the reality that he had denied Jesus three times. But God is a God of fourth chances. And he would face the ultimate test of his faith, the ultimate test of his 
resolve? Is he resolved to stay committed when everything is coming against him? He could face the most difficult challenge of his life. Peter knew that he had to face it, but he knew his hope was no longer dead. He saw his hope get nailed to the cross, but then he felt the hands of Jesus who had resurrected and the hope was no longer dead. And so in his life, in his flesh, he had this eternal vision that would awaken a motivation to stay committed to what God was doing. He saw his trial as his opportunity. He knew he had an eternal inheritance in heaven and that this opportunity again, once again, to prove the genuineness of his faith, faith was before him. Once again, he would face persecution and he knows that it might even lead him to death. And in the knowledge that his savior was no longer dead but alive, he had an inexpressible, glorious joy an unshakable joy, a joy that can't be bound, a joy that can't be dominated, a joy that can't be talked down, a joy that's not going to be dictated by a circumstance. He had a joy that was unshakable and he's apprehended by the Romans and Emperor Nero prepares a cross for Peter to be executed on. The very instrument of annihilation and torment and torture that Jesus was nailed to. And Peter approaching the cross, it is written that Peter looks at the cross and says, I am not worthy to be crucified the same way my Jesus died. Flip me upside down and crucify me upside down. You can take my flesh from my bones. You can take my life from my lungs. You can take my breath and my, my, my me being awake. You can kill my body, but you will not never take what God gave me. You cannot kill my soul. He had an unshakable joy. Something that you just can't explain in the flesh because it's not in the flesh, it's in the spirit. And he breathed his last dying breath. The author of what we read today, his last dying breath upside down blood rushing to his head on a cross with joy thinking about an eternal vision this eternal inheritance this pain that I'm facing this death that I'm facing is not enough to take me out of what God has called me to facing pain and death he has an unshakable joy God give us an unshakable joy. He didn't die for a Jesus that's dead and buried and rotting away. He died for a Jesus that just took a nap. He just took a nap in the grave, but the stone was rolled away and Jesus is no longer there and the garments are folded and Jesus is gone and Jesus is ascended and Jesus is resurrected. He didn't die for someone who died. He died for a living Jesus that's all powerful, that stands in the throne room awaiting his arrival an eternal vision what is our vision this is the main idea today our vision is eternity with Jesus one day one day I'm going to stand. I'm going to stand at heaven's gates. And all the pain that I felt faced on earth and all the, the difficulty that I face today will fade away like a mist. It'll be gone. 
and I'll, I'll stand at heaven's gates and I'll see Jesus for the first time. The same Jesus who died for me and died for you. The same Jesus that loved you enough to take the full wrath of man and the full wrath of God so that you had a chance. The same Jesus that made a way when there was no way. The same Jesus that took a nap in the grave but conquered death hell in the grave. See, he wasn't just taking a nap. He was at work. He was at war. He was doing what we could never do. He was in the spirit fighting our battle for us because we can't fight in flesh and blood we fight in the spirit I will see the day see the moment see the picture see the vision picture this where you see Jesus and you can tell by his movement that he's not angry with you and he locks eyes with you and he's been proud of you the whole time even in your worst pain and your worst failure loves you more than you could imagine and he paid a way where there was no way and he says these words to you you well done my good and faithful servant Nothing is more worthy than this calling, the calling to follow Jesus, the calling to stand in the gap, the calling to stand when there is no way, the calling to be faithful when I feel nothing but pain, the calling to commit to Jesus, to commit your life to him, not just here on earth, but for all of eternity. See, we are living but, but a temporary life. And one day this room will be empty. And one day your home will be empty here on earth. But we're not talking about the flesh. We're talking about the spirit because your home is not the box that you live in when you drive home after work or after, after church. Your home is in heaven face to face with the eternal Jesus that loves you more than you could imagine. And what I'm calling you today, somebody in this room, even just one person that you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, that God would knock on the door of your heart. Or if you've made a decision and you have not committed your life and you have not pursued him with all your might, that you would remake a decision and make a declaration to stand in the gap and say, no matter how I'm feeling or facing, I'm going to stand for Jesus. So make a decision today. Today is your opportunity. Right now is your opportunity to stand for Jesus and make a decision to follow him for the first time or to re-follow and recommit your life to him on this Sunday morning. I pray you would, you would arise with boldness in this moment. Everybody bow your heads, close your eyes. If you wanna make a decision to follow Jesus, for the first time or you want to recommit your life to Jesus, I pray a new boldness over you. I pray that you would stand up with faith and I pray in this moment on the count of three that you would open your eyes and look at me and raise your hand. One, two, three. Glory to God, I see you. 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 Glory to God. Repeat these words after me. Jesus, I submit my life to you, not just as, as Savior, but as the Lord. I pray that I would come under your authority and commit myself for the rest of my days. Forgive me of my sin. 
transform me from the inside out and give me a strength and a boldness to follow you for all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, I need you to do me a favor and put your hands together for every person that made a decision to follow Jesus for the first time. Glory to God. We're not done, church. My prayer for you is that you would develop an eternal vision, a vision that changes how you see your life, a vision that gives you a mortal motivation where you start seeing your trial as your opportunity. And so my prayer today is that you would get out of your comfort zone, that you would rise up in boldness, that you would stand up in faith. We're gonna worship God together. And what I want you to do is if you want a new touch from the Holy Spirit, if you want an eternal vision that changes the way you see your life, here on earth, I want you to come to the altars, every single one of you. I want you to step out in faith. I want you to step out in boldness. We're gonna worship together. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for this chance to worship. Thank you for this chance to kneel before you. God, I pray a new vision over these people. In Jesus' name, amen.